This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, the very best bits of today's show. It is a Monday morning, 19th of February. What have we got for you today? Well, a big focus on travel today. We've got live on air. Numbers from Dubai Airport came out. Confirmation that 2023 was a new record for Dubai Airport passengers. 87 million punters through the doors. Better than pre-pandemic levels. We're going to hear from Paul Griffiths, the CEO of Dubai Airports. Also talking about the RTA, they reported a sharp increase in the number of public transport journeys. Lots of reaction to that. And then talking trade as well, because we had trade figures, non-oil trade for the UAE out over the weekend. Again, really, really strong set of numbers in what has not been a great year for trade globally. So we've got details on that and analysis from Jean Walters. She's an economist at Emirates MBD. What else can I tell you? Rob Ansari's been joining us from Mercer. Retirement. There is a new front line in the war for talent. And it's retired people. Countries like the UAE want people to retire there because of the power of the silver dollar. And finally, talking about fake real estate listings. RERA, the real estate authority, cracking down on fake real estate listings. We've been getting legal advice from Sharam Safai of the law firm Afridi and Angel. All that to come. First up, though, let's jump into those numbers. Let's talk about trade because UAE non-oil trade set a new record last year at almost $1 trillion. Numbers came out yesterday on the ex-account of UAE Prime Minister and Vice President Sheikh Mohammed. He credited trade deals including Turkey and India, the so-called SEPA's Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. He also said that the economy of the UAE reached a new level despite the global decline in international trade. It really was quite a stunning set of numbers. So we've been getting some perspective on this from Jean Walters, senior economist at Emirates MBD. We asked her, what were your key takeaways, not only from the data, but also from the commentary from the likes of Sheikh Mohammed, but also Trade Minister Al Zayudi? Total UAE non-oil foreign trade reached record levels in 2023, rising to a value of 3.5 trillion dirhams. The announcement highlighted that trade with the country's top 10 partners had risen 26% year-on-year. Specifically, non-oil trade with Turkey rose by just over 103% year-on-year, while non-oil trade with the USA increased by 20% on an annual basis. Importantly, the UAE has achieved these levels of non-oil trade growth despite weaker growth in most advanced economies economies and weaker levels of global trade. There was also evidence to highlight the importance of recent SEPA agreements, with data suggesting that non-oil foreign trade with the countries with whom SEPAs have either been implemented or are nearing implementation rose 24.5% year on year. That is not too shabby by any manner of means, particularly as Hassan Sheikh Mohammed pointed out, in a year that was bad for global trade. So that was the year that was great. 2023 did really well. But of course, we look to the future, not to the past. We asked Jan very simply, what is the forecast that you and your team at Emirates MBD have for UAE non-oil trade this year and beyond? The outlook for UAE trade over the next few years is positive, despite the lacklustre global growth outlook in the short term. A continued push to negotiate a range of SEPA agreements with announcements relating to over 20 countries at present should support non-oil trade activity going forward. 
These comprehensive economic partnership agreements reduce or eliminate tariffs on goods being traded. In addition, CEPAs tend to be more ambitious in their coverage when compared to free trade agreements because they cover not just goods but also services, investment, regulatory issues and how to deal with disputes. At present, the UAE has five CEPAs that have been implemented, including agreements with key markets such as India and Turkey. Finally, we asked John about the situation in China this morning. Back to work in China after a week off, if not more, for the Lunar New Year. Headline on the front page of the Financial Times this morning is pretty upbeat. The Year of the Dragon opened with a surge in spending in China as domestic travel during the eight-day festival rose 34%, hitting the highest, not since pre-pandemic levels, but higher than pre-pandemic levels. Stock market in Shanghai up by about 1% this morning. Here's Jean's quick take. Expectations had been for a good day on Chinese markets when they reopened this morning after having been closed for New Year's celebrations last week. This expectation was driven by news that there were 474 million tourist trips taken during the festivities, surpassing the pre-pandemic 2019 limits. Some of this optimism appears to be fading this morning, however, as broad measures of Asia-Pacific stocks appear to have fallen back. The thoughts of Jean Walter, senior economist, Emirates MBD. A quieter week on the roads to the UAE. We're expecting heavy traffic today because the back to school, back to work mentality post half term. But multiple, multiple accidents being reported out there this morning. Yeah, it, it does look very, very busy right now. Of course, one of the alternatives is to take public transport. And we got those numbers out from the RTA over the weekend, didn't we? That use of public transport is increasing here in Dubai. 13, 1, 3% increase in journeys on public transport, according to the RTA last year, to just over 700 million, 702. Now, that is interesting. If Brandy Scott was here, she's not, she's on vacation this week, she'd be jumping all over this as a bit of proxy data, wouldn't she? She'd love this, yeah. Any city in the world, if you see a 13, 1, 3% increase in use of public transport, then that tells you something. The Metro led the charge with 260 million of those journeys, closely followed by taxis with almost 200 million journeys. Uh, the tram, yeah, fine. Yeah, I think it was seven or eight million. I was watching the, the video from the RTA, which crunched the numbers. But it's the metro, isn't it? And also over the weekend, we've heard from the RTA, plans to build a metro station at your house, Tom Urquhart, which is kind of them. Not million miles away. Yeah, the blue line. So confirmation over the weekend that the blue line, the Dubai Metro blue line uh, project will start later on this year. 14 new stations will be added onto the blue line. Uh, it's going to add 30 kilometres onto the network as well. But we're going to have to wait a little while uh, because it will not be uh, scheduled to be finished in 2029, which does pose the question. I mean, if we are, we're seeing these numbers increase at the rate they are at the moment. If we are to buy into the proxy data that we are receiving, I mean, can the Metro? Um, we know that it's a sort of it's at certain times of the day, it's, uh, it's, it's almost at its limits at the moment. But what more can you do? You talked about making it double-decker. That's probably not pos, or, but then anything's pos, isn't well, it? Well, anything's possible. If you think about Paris, the, the, not the metro system, but what they call the RER yeah. there. They, well, I think it's a metro. The, the, it is double-decker. So you can have double-decker trains. It would need quite a bit of civil engineering work on the metro stations. And Raise the roofs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Raise the roof is what you'd have to do. But it's not impossible. No. But I, I just wonder, and I, I, don't, I, I don't know the answer to this one. I mean, can we not just add more trains? Can we just not put more service on? Or is it at 
sort of maximum. I, I don't know the inner workings I don't know. of scheduling of metros. But but like you, I had a my kids had a Thomas the Tank Engine train set, and yeah, <laughs> you could just go down to Toys R Us and buy an extra Thomas or a Gordon or whatever it may be. Can we not just buy a couple more Gordons? Can we not get a few more few more carriages? Yeah. Add a few more carriages. Um, but then again, I don't know how, how the scheduling works. In fact, something we will look into in more detail throughout the course of this week. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right, the moment you've all been waiting for. We've been building up to this one. We told you that he was on his way to the studio. He was coming with the latest numbers. It's a warm welcome to Paul Griffiths, the CEO of Dubai Airport. Good morning to you, Paul. A very good morning to you, Tom. And how good a morning is it for all the team at Dubai Airports? You come with the latest numbers. Uh, I will give the floor to you. Tell us all. Thank you so much. Well, (laughs) it's been an amazing year, and I think we have broken all previous records in every single possible measurable respect. 87 million was our 2023 annual customer numbers through the airport, which is a whopping 31.7% year-on-year growth, which is uh, um, an absolute record. Strongest quarter was Q4, 13.8% year-on-year, 22.4 million. Um, The highlight as well is about the quality. The good thing is that we seem to have also scored the highest level of customer satisfaction ever, during the course of 2023 and underground of course we've been beavering away 77.5 million bags were handled in 2023 and only 0.2% of them being delayed and being delivered to customers so apologies if you're part of the 0.2% but 98 99.8% of customers receive their bags on time and Another thing we're very proud of, 95% of people coming through the airport experienced queues of less than seven minutes. An average waiting time at security is less than four uh, minutes for 97.5% of guests. So not, is, not only is the quantity high, the quality seems to have taken a, a very significant uptick as well. So I'm very, very grateful to the tens of thousands of people that uh, contribute to this amazing number and um, let's hope that uh, 2024 proves equally successful as we move forward had a sneak peek at january and i'm smiling because of those as well <laughs> listen extraordinary numbers Dini and i were talking about this a little bit earlier on i mean we were given uh, the numbers all the way up to q4 last year uh, dxb and dubai airports in general just doing extraordinary work and it's great to see that they have uh, shattered all those uh, the, the records to date let's just bury into those or dig into those a little bit more. So uh, the traffic figures, as you mentioned there, uh, footfall uh, certainly up down at DXB. Um, Certainly up, most definitely. Top destinations, London retained its uh, number one position with 3.7 million guests. Uh, Riyadh actually up there, 2.6. Mumbai with 2.5. So that's been um, very good. Markets overall looking particularly good. India claiming the top spot as a country, uh, 11.9 million, followed by KSA 6.7 and the UK 5.9. And other country markets looking strong, Pakistan 4.2 million, the US 3.6 million, 
Russia 2.5 and Germany 2.5. So great success across the whole of the globe and flight movements mirroring what we're seeing with guest numbers. 406,405 aeroplanes took off and landed at DXB in 2023. The highest ever total movements we've seen at the airport, up 21.3% year on year. What, what strikes me, Paul, and I know it's something that you're very proud of as well, because given the, the hard work of the entire team, but, you know, with those that increase in footfall, with that increase in numbers comes more pressure on you and your team at the airports to get that equally high guest experience uh, tick from all of those coming through the airport must fill you with a huge amount of pride. Well, it certainly does, especially when you think about what happened in 2020 and the fact that the business effectively dissolved in, in May 2020. I remember the statistic that we had uh, during the entire month, the same passenger numbers as we had in four hours in 2019. That was the dramatic impact on our business. And of course, we had to say goodbye to so many loyal staff. And it's just amazing that we've bounced back with a l much lower staff number than we had before, yet this quality of service is being provided. And one statistic that's not in the press release is the fact we've also had the highest ever uh, staff engagement scores recently. So we're very, very happy with what's been going on and um, very, very grateful to all of the people that have contributed to this great success for the whole of the airport sector. In terms of staffing, are you back up to full numbers now? Are you, are you openly recruiting as well, given the fact that we are seeing an increase in numbers? We are, yes, in certain categories. But overall, we've been quite abstemious with building up staff numbers, prepare, um, preferring to actually invest in process improvement and a huge amount of technology. We track every um, single customer as they go through the airport. We can spot instantly any um, hiccups in the in the flow uh, and the secret really is rather than continually building more infrastructure if you can speed people through the airport you get so many benefits you don't have to invest so much in the infrastructure you can actually double the capacity with the doubling of the flow rates and of course um, fast moving customers through the airport that only stop when they want to stop are um, happy customers so it's it's a win-win-win really um We've talked about the the the, the baggage, uh, the, the the thumbs up for baggage and baggage retention, etc. What about cargo, larger as well? Obviously, we saw a spike in cargo numbers during COVID as well. Big focus on that. Has that continued to deliver? The cargo volumes are a bit down, and that's because, of course, if you recall, uh, Tom, during the pandemic, we converted a huge number of passenger aircraft to carry pharmaceuticals to distribute vaccines. So we're still seeing a, a, a slight downtick in, in cargo. We saw something like 1.8 million tonnes during the course of 2023, which is down about 20% year on year. Mm. And I think some of the markets in, in um, Asia are the reason why the cargo market hasn't bounced back quite as strongly um, as we'd like it to. But uh, we're something like... Um, 
20.4% improved in Q4 for cargo. Um, so the, I think the future for cargo does look bright and we're seeing huge um, increases in demand and new facilities being opened um, at DWC Almat 2 International um, over the next few months. So looking forward to that sector recovering fully over the next uh, uh, maybe year, so we say. You mentioned that you've had a little sneak peek at the January numbers already. I mean, in terms of outlook for 2024, things looking good? I think they are. The outlook um, forecast for 2024 remains at a fairly conservative 88.8 million. But um, if I could possibly indulge myself a little, I wonder whether we might hit the magic 9-0 during the course of 2024. It'd be a nice thing to do as, and then to rocket towards that magic 100 million maybe by 2026, shall we say. Nothing wrong with uh, setting yourself those sort of targets, that's for sure. Mm. Uh, Paul, uh, congratulations to you. I know it's a team effort down there at Dubai airports, across the airports themselves, but extraordinary numbers uh, and, of course, uh, extraordinary reaction as well from those coming into the country as well. So, Paul, thank you. And thanks also for coming and sharing them with us here on the Business Breakfast as well. Always a pleasure, Tom. You know that. Paul Grethis is the CEO of Dubai Airports. They have released their latest numbers and, as suspected, they are very good. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's talk about retirement now because there is a new war for talent in the UAE and beyond, and that is for retired workers. The battle for the so-called silver dollar spend by retired people. We know this because new research from Mercer, the recruitment consultancy, said so. Rob Ansari is a partner with Mercer here in this region, and he joins us now live. Morning, Rob. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks very much indeed. So this is a global bit of research that also covers the UAE. Why are we so keen? Why are countries so keen to have retired workers? Well, look, essentially, and the report goes through this, people are living longer. They are retiring earlier. That creates this pool of silver capital or silver dollars, if you call it. Um, And because these people are typically retiring earlier and spending more in their latter years, there is this desire and need to have these silver dollars spent in the country of uh, of your choice. But surely, Rob, there are the haves and the have-nots when it comes to people who are retired. I mean, I'm about as capital as they come, but even I'm slightly worried that this could give rise to elitist policies where there's a a battle to attract wealthy retirees. But what happens to people who are retiring with a a, a small or no savings? Yeah, that's true. And we've seen those kinds of practices around the world. In fact, both in parts of the European bloc where there were questions raised about how or what kind of people were being enticed into places like Spain and Portugal by virtue of uh, of retirement visas. But I would say that the way that the UAE are trying to tackle this is by things like unemployment insurance programs and having a structure which is set for everyone, not just for the elitists. But really, it's down to the kinds of expats that originally decided to move to the UAE and other parts of the, of the region. So it's it's not just an elitist program that's trying to be created here. I think it's something which is intended to be for everyone. One of the challenges we know of having retirees live in the country, any country, is healthcare costs. As we get older, we become more expensive in terms of healthcare. As Ed Moopin of Astadiem Healthcare told us earlier this year about the 80-20 principle, we spend 80% of our budget on healthcare in the final 20% of our lives. Have a listen to Neil here. He's a Business Breakfast listener in Ras al Khaimah. He's 63 years old. He lives in Ras al Khaimah. He's worked here most of his life. He's retired, but his insurance premiums have almost doubled this year. This is Neil. 
I am currently 63 years old and my wife is 61 year old. We have no ongoing health issues. We're both fit and healthy, exercising regularly, etc. Recently, I received the um, insurance renewal for the coming year and we are facing an 80% increase in the premium. I really feel as older people in the UAE, we are being penalised and just um, some arbitrary figure applied to our premium. How do countries in general address this issue of rising healthcare costs for a retired population? Uh, it varies between different country to country. For example, in the UK, there is a state pension, uh, sorry, a state uh, healthcare system with the NHS. Uh, one of the challenges of Brits retiring in the UAE, as that uh, your um, colleague sounded like there, that you don't have access to that NHS program, which is a residency program. In the UAE, for example, there is a requirement to have healthcare. So. It would depend between country to country, but one of the things we see countries doing now are setting up healthcare insurance pooled funds. And these pooled funds are meant to sort of, sort of if you will, tax those unhealthy uh, people to pay for the healthcare of the, of, the, of the healthier. But one thing I would say, and, and this is sort of true of the UAE, is that many of the people that do retire here are often seeking a better lifestyle. And that lifestyle is also um, coincidental with the, uh, with the health of those people too. I'm having coffee after the show, actually, just as, as luck would have it with a, a, a retired gentleman who tells me that he's paying hundreds of thousands of dirhams a year for health insurance for he and his wife, just for the privilege of living here. He's an expatriate who retired recently. Maybe I'll buy the coffee. Um, very quickly, <laughs> le- very quickly, in terms of, of retiring, what else does a country like the UAE need to do to attract retired people? It's a great question. Um, so we'd have seen last November the UAE announced, in fact, a few things have come out of the last few years, one of them being this um, unemployment insurance program. So we've seen that the UAE has created all different kinds of jobs and job sectors. Historically, the UAE was a place where people came for three years and left. I'm one of those people who came for, for, for three years, 12 or 13 years ago. So job opportunities is critical for one of them. The second thing would be a scalable and a flexible uh, retirement structure, which is already in place in the in the DIFC with Jews, um, that got announced to be expanded or or or, or a structure like it expanded uh, on country. So I'd say with those types of uh, insurance, uh, sorry, those types of pension structures will come a lot of um, stability in the market. It'll also be great to see a lot of corporates engage in the types of defined contributions or DC plans we see common around the world as well. So I'd say that they're the key things. Rob, I said that was my final question, and it was, but Maya has written in with a question, and it picks up on retirement planning and the dues system that you mentioned Mm -hmm. in DIFC, which is replacing the old gratuity system. We haven't got time to go into this in detail, but it's quite a big deal. How important is it that we restructure the old gratuity system into something that's more like a a, a pension or a 401k in the United States, and how do we get there? Look, it's as simple as this. The competition for silver dollars starts with a competition for talent. Things like um, corporate breakdowns or corporate blow-ups, a barrage being a classic example of put things like the old end of service structure very much on the map for all the wrong reasons. So if you want to attract and retain top talent, it's imperative that a lot of large corporations, either within the DIFC or outside the DIFC, come up with a structure which gives employees the flexibility and basically for the safety to be able to save their earnings into retirement without fear of it going awry at some point in time. Good talk to you, Rob. Appreciate your time this morning. I know you're fresh off a flight from Muscat, so thanks for doing that. Rob Ansari, Head of Investments and Retirement in this region for Mercer.
their new report just to recap the findings. There is a war for talent, and that is retired people with a silver dollar in their back pocket. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk real estate now, if we can. Uh, obviously, well documented that the real estate market, the property markets are booming at the moment. With that, though... Uh, comes a few nefarious practices. And last week, the DLD, the Dubai Land Department, ordered all real estate agents here to remove all fake property listings online within three working days. So, in theory, they should be off the systems this Monday morning. Otherwise, uh, they would and could potentially face fines. Uh, Why have they put this into process? Well, let's get the thoughts now of uh, one of the partners from Afridi, an angel legal consultant. Shram Safai has been kind enough to join us live on a Monday morning here in studio. Shram, great to see you as always. Likewise, likewise. Good morning. So... First of all, why do, why do property agents do this? What, what's, how does it benefit them having a fake listing? Uh, sure. Uh, listen, property agents are really a big part of this market. They've, they've helped to develop Dubai, and so there's a lot of uh, good property agents, but there's a few bad apples. Mm. And that's really what we're talking about. Um, in other markets, this is called the classic bait and switch. They show you something, but they sell you something else. And that, that's what they're really employing. It's basic... Uh, swapping what, they, uh, what they're selling. And so they put an ad showing a very nice apartment. Perhaps it's furnished. The price is very reasonable. You call and they say, oh, I'm sorry, that's rented. It's not available or it's sold. Uh, so it, it's a marketing method, which is obviously not in good faith and should not be done. The DLD stepping in, uh, they have warned uh, all of the uh, agents and the agencies out there at the moment. They have warned of potential fines as well. Had it got to a point that the DLD needed to do something about this? Yes, it was pretty bad. I mean, I, I think if you uh, if you went around the websites that they mention, the various websites that that uh, list the sales and the rentals, you would see that a significant number of them are this way when you make the phone call. And they say, I'm sorry, it was just rented, it's not available. It cannot be that so many of them uh, at the same time are not available when the ad is there. And so if you look at the stats from uh, one of the local newspapers, they were saying about 30% of them were fake I don't know. I haven't done the stats, but based on what I saw, it was slightly higher than that. Mm. It was quite bad. The, the, the one of the reasons for this is obviously the reputation of the industry as a whole. Um, for those looking to buy or rent as well, just how how, how does one go about sort of get, making sure that the thing that they're looking at on those listings are authentic? How do you guarantee authenticity? Uh, well, uh, first of all, the Dubai Land Department and RIRA, which is part of the Dubai Land Department, has already tackled this. They've got a system in place called mm. Trahisi, and that is a system where you have to get approval before you put the ad up. And when you do, it gives you a Q- QR code. So that QR code is perhaps uh, a sign of quality where you can scan it and, and verify that it's been approved by the government. That's, I think, the first uh, step. Now that's being implemented, it has been implemented, Uh, not that it's being, it has been implemented, but some have not used it. Uh, And generally, it's important to use brokers that have a very good reputation. Uh, They are uh, in the market, they're known for certain types of properties that you're interested in. So like any market, like any product, it is about buyer beware and is about being careful. But the government has stepped in to assist with the Trahisi system. That's part and parcel of this drive to make the market as transparent as possible as well. Just how important is transparency when it comes to 
an area like real estate? Uh, very important. I mean, I've been talking about transparency, I think, since I moved here in 2002. <laughs> and the government, of course, uh, very committed to that. Transparency and knowing what's for sale, what the dimensions of the, of the, of the plot are, when was it sold, how much uh, was it sold for in the past, is it mortgage, all these things from a sale perspective, from a rental perspective. And that carries on into brokerage and the representations as to what they're selling or what they're renting. So it's extremely important because the public uh, is trusting. They look at the website, they access it, and they assume and trust that what's on there is truthful. If it's not, then we damage the reputation of Dubai. Hmm. And really, it's all about Dubai. We're all in the same boat. We're all rowing in the same direction. And so it's very important that everyone pulls their weight and does the right thing. A lot of listeners out there will be going, okay, guys, yeah, I get this, you know, but it, it, as, you, as you've rightly said, this is something that has been done around the world for, for many times. It's great that the authorities here are trying to clamp down on it. But who's buying on spec? Who's buying on just a picture they see on the website? Surely a lot of people are going, well, surely you're going to see it at the website, then you're going to go and visit it physically, and then you're going to make the decision. But that, that's not the whole case here, is it? A lot of people no. do buy. No, it's a marketing scheme. Yeah. And so here's what happens. You know, they'll put up a fake ad, looks great. You'll call them because you're very interested in that apartment, which looks so nice in that price. They say it's not available, but how else can I help you? So you're, they've got you in the door and they've hooked you. It's a bait and switch and they've baited you again. And you're in there as a customer and you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm on the phone with this person anyway, might as well engage in, and use that broker. And that is unethical and should not be allowed. Is, is the industry a victim of its own success to a certain degree? You know, with so much reward from real estate and property at the moment, is it only natural that you get people trying to take advantage? Well, it, in any market, uh, the market can sway to the left and the right. and You have to put the curbs in to make sure they stay in the, in the main highway. And so this is the same thing. Uh, the more entrants there are, the more participants in the market, the more you have to make sure that the regulation is there. So that's right. Uh, and it's a natural course of what the market will do. These fake ads, with uh, interesting reading some of the reports and some of the, uh, the, the polls online about it. In fact, the Kalish Times recently uh, ran a poll about this one. 21% of those surveyed saying that they were lured by the ads promoting houses that were either unavailable or the other side of the problem here – already taken as yes. well. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, th th that's just, uh, it's misrepresentation to the public and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Mm. If you're a visitor looking to invest here, if you're someone who is moving here, uh, and we don't want that. That's a very minor uh, issue and, and easy de easily dealt with, but it leaves a very bad taste in someone's mouth because they assume, well, if that's the case with brokerage, then what about the rest of Dubai? So we can't have that. Back to the point of regulation as well. We know that the, the market is evolving all the time. The regulations are evolving in line with it as well. I mean, when you compare and contrast the sort of real estate regulations here compared to other markets around the world, where do we stand? Listen, we are, in, in my personal opinion, not, not having done a survey, really yeah. uh, top of the pops when it comes to the MENA region. Mm -hmm. So we are doing very well. We're transparent. We're open. Uh, it's a fantastic market and, and transactions are happening and they're publicly uh, announced after a while. So you know what the volumes are, where, etc. So that's great. But our vision, as you know, as a, as a city state is to become the best in the world globally, to be ranked globally. And there we still have some work to do. 
We have excellent regulations. Uh, Dubai Land Department is one, in my opinion, one of the best government departments that I've dealt with, mm. continue to be. They do their best, but we have a system that's still evolving. It's a young country. And so uh, other systems also need to uh, pull up in order for us to uh, become that number one that we're aiming for. One thing that uh, Sharam himself can, can guarantee is that uh, real estate and the property market is going to keep us busy uh, for the next couple of months. <laughs> Who knows, maybe the next few years as well. Certainly things booming therein. Uh, Sharam Safai is a partner at Afridi and Angel Legal Consultants. Can't thank you enough. Thanks so much indeed for joining us on a Monday morning. Thank you. My pleasure. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.